My name is Elizabeth, but you can call me Liz and I'll be your host. Today, I was actually planning on talking about another case. But last week, while I was scrolling through Instagram, as one does a little too much now because of quarantine, I came across a post that someone had shared on their story. The post was basically a screenshot of a news article and it was the headline that really caught my attention. It read, May 5th as National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native American Girls. I had previously heard about missing or murdered Aboriginal women not receiving adequate news coverage that would be considered equivalent to what a white woman might receive in the event of her disappearance or murder but I guess I had always brushed it off as a form of institutionalized racism that was obviously unfair, but still heavily present. What I didn't know was the extent of the epidemic happening in Canada, leaving behind a trail of missing and murdered Aboriginal women. Today I'm going to highlight a few different cases of both missing and murdered Aboriginal women in Winnipeg, Manitoba, near the Red River. There are simply too many cases to choose from, and I couldn't bring myself to only focus on one. We begin our journey down Winnipeg's Red River with 15-year-old Tina Michelle Fontaine. Tina was born on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1999, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, to Valentina Duck from the Bloodvein First Nation north of Winnipeg, and Eugene Fontaine from the Sadkeeg First Nation in Fort Alexander, Manitoba. Tina's mother, Valentina, was no stranger to the Child and Family Services Agencies of Manitoba. At the age of only six, Valentina's environment was infested with violence and addiction, often leaving her without care or protection. In 1992, when Valentina was 10, she became a permanent ward of CFS. She was frequently moved around and as rage inside her bubbled over, she began to run away, began to abuse drugs and alcohol at a young age, attempting to cope with her unstable living situation that was filled with unfamiliar faces and inconsistent homes. To further her trauma, Valentina was being sexually exploited and her caseworkers were aware of the situation, yet did little to nothing to intervene. Eugene Fontaine, Tina's father, came into Valentina's life when she was only 12, and he was 23, 11 years her senior. Eugene Fontaine's father lived through the implementation of residential schools firsthand. He left his home on Sakig First Nation when he was only 12, moving to Winnipeg where he began a hard life on the streets. The abuses and horrors he experienced while at these residential schools shaped his life to be filled with severe alcoholism and violence. Okay, 
For those of you who may not know, I most certainly did not. Residential schools were established by the Canadian government back in the 1800s and lasted up until the last few decades of the 20th century. The purpose of residential schools was to integrate Aboriginal children into mainstream European and Christian culture, education, and language. There were strict rules that the children had to follow, including not being able to speak in their native tongue or even acknowledge their cultural heritage. There are many that were noted saying the goal was to take the Indian out of the child. Children were actively ripped from their families for lengthy periods of time at crucial developmental ages, causing permanent irreversible trauma. And to make matters worse, the education offered at these residential schools focused on light industry work like carpentry domestic work like sewing and basic agricultural practices. It was a second class education that came to a halt at grade five. The Canadian government has since seized operation of residential schools and did issue a retroactive apology for the harm these institutions may have caused. Many Aboriginal individuals have since spoken out about sexual, physical, and mental abuse experienced while boarded at these residential schools. Upon their return, these traumatized children were left with no footing and an undeniable resentment toward their government. As they aged, they resorted to alcohol and drugs to cope with this traumatic experience. Honestly, they didn't have a clue of what to do next or how or where to work or even where to live. Most of them became estranged from their family members and failed to identify with their culture, but also didn't identify with mainstream Canadian society, leaving them in this awkward middle ground that led to depression and anxiety. The totality of this occurrence is referred to as cultural genocide. I really want this episode to serve as some sort of educational tool that outlines what has and is still happening to Aboriginal people in Canada. So it's important for you to understand the gravity of the situation surrounding residential schools and the lasting impact they have had on Aboriginal communities. Okay, back to Tina. Tina's mother, Valentina, gave birth to her first child in 1996, when she was only 14. Child and Family Services apprehended the child immediately. It's around the birth of her first child that Eugene's mother confirms to CFS that Eugene was sexually exploiting Valentina and profiting off of it. This time, Concerned caseworkers actually attempted to intervene, but Valentina brushed them off and told them Eugene was the only one who would take care of her. We see this a lot in abusive or toxic relationships. Without having experienced a violently abusive relationship, 
we're often quick to assume that if the relationship is so toxic, then why doesn't the individual just leave? The reality is, it's never quite that simple. The victim will leave five to seven times before actually severing ties. It's clear in Valentina's message to her caseworker that even though her relationship with Eugene may be exploitative or violence or abusive, he still manages to take care of her. And she can't lose that source of security and stability in a community that is riddled with homicide. Three years later, on January 1st, 1999, Valentina gives birth to Tina at the age of 17, with Eugene now being 28. According to an article published by CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, both Valentina and Eugene were making positive forward steps towards Three years later, on January 1st, 1999, Valentina gave birth to Tina at the age of 17, with Eugene now being 28. According to an article published by CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, both Valentina and Eugene were making positive steps forward, away from their violent, toxic, and abusive past. Both began attending parenting classes and addictions programs, and hospital staff showed no concerns for their well-being. In June of 1999, only six months after the birth of her second child, Tina, Valentina aged out of CFS care as she turned 18. As problems began to arise surrounding the birth of her third child, Sarah Fontaine, in June of 2000, Child and Family Services seized both Tina and Sarah, placing them in a hotel at the age of one and four months. Eugene and Valentina were accused of leaving their children in the care of their grandmother and failing to return after a significant amount of time had passed. Four days after being seized by CFS, Tina and Sarah were returned to their parents but no assessment on the parents' ability to effectively care for these children was done. There's another incident that happens the following year, again forcing CFS to intervene and seize Tina and Sarah. After Eugene and Valentina are seen leaving a house party, visibly intoxicated, with their children following close behind them. CFS placed Tina and Sarah in a hotel where they stayed for nine days before being placed in foster care. It was at this time that Valentina and Eugene's relationship came to an end. After the successful completion of several addictions treatment and parenting classes, Eugene was able to regain custody of both Tina and Sarah. There was no extensive monitoring or support system put in place to ensure the maintenance of a happy and healthy home for Tina and Sarah. After they were returned to their father, 
CFS essentially closed their case file despite Eugene's history of violence, abuse, and sexual exploitation as seen with his ex, Valentina. Valentina seized complete communication with her two daughters for several years after her separation from Eugene. In 2003, Eugene was diagnosed with terminal cancer. After receiving this diagnosis, Eugene made the decision to give custody of his two daughters, Tina, who was four years old at the time, and Sarah, who was two, to his aunt Thelma and uncle Joseph Favelle in Powerview Pine Falls, Manitoba, next to the Sagkeeg First Nation. It's noted that while living with Thelma and Joseph, they did stay briefly in Selkirk, Manitoba, but it's unclear when this happened. In 2005, Thelma requested Tina be assessed for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but CFS failed to grant her request. In 2011, at the age of 41, Eugene was given four months to live, but did not die from his terminal illness. Instead, he was murdered by 24-year-old Nicholas Abraham and 32-year-old Jonathan Starr. The three men were on an alcohol and drug binge, drinking heavily and snorting crushed medication at Jonathan's home. An argument soon erupted over money Eugene apparently owed to Jonathan. Eugene was then beaten repeatedly over the course of several hours. He was stomped on the head, dragged outside to a shed, tied up, and left without a shirt on a cold night in October in the Saikig First Nation, northeast of Winnipeg, where he ultimately died of a head injury. A few hours later, Nicholas called police, who subsequently found Eugene's body in the shed, covered by a blanket. An outdoor deck was stained with blood and appeared to have been mopped up. The medical examiner later confirmed, after conducting an autopsy, that Eugene's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Both Nicholas and Jonathan were arrested for Eugene's murder and stood trial pleading guilty to charges of manslaughter. The court heard stories centering around the rough childhoods experienced by both assailants, including violent parents that they believed to have contributed to them having alcohol and substance abuse issues. Nicholas sobbed as he turned to speak to the Fontaine family. He said he was truly sorry and wished he was dead instead of Eugene. He mentioned his own daughter and how he doesn't want her to grow up to be like him. Nicholas continued to say he will carry with him the burden of taking away the life of a father. Both Nicholas and Jonathan were sentenced on December 10th, 2014 to nine years, but received credit for time served, which reduced the remaining sentence to five years and three months. Lana Fontaine, one of Eugene's sisters, said this of her late brother. I want them to know that they took a really good guy out of this world. He was a hard worker, a great father, and a good friend. He would have taken his jacket off for even them. 
Now, I know I said this episode would retell the stories of a few murdered and missing Aboriginal women. So why am I highlighting the murder of an older Aboriginal man? Because his death initiated a pivotal downward spiral for one of his daughters, Tina, which ultimately led to her death. I wouldn't be able to really tell the story of the Red River or of the thousands of missing and murdered daughters, sisters, and mothers without including the case that sparked a new fire in the Aboriginal communities of Canada. Tina was 12 years old when her father was beaten to death. The stability that her aunt Thelma had worked so hard to build was shattered. Thelma expressed just how well Tina was doing before her father's murder. Tina loved school and did well. She had a big heart and loved to play games with other children. To Thelma, Tina was the perfect little girl. Children's advocate Daphne Penrose released a report that spoke of the Fontaine family and children and family services complicity in the tragedy that has wrecked this family entirely. Victim services failed to arrange grief counseling for Tina, despite her eligibility. As a result, Tina began skipping school frequently and even running away from home in the years following her father's murder. Thelma pleaded with victim services to help Tina during this difficult time of grief and loss, but her pleas went unanswered. In November, on the day of Eugene's funeral, Tina received a call from her mother for the first time since they had last spoken in 2004. Tina arranged to visit her mother in Winnipeg in January of 2014. The visit went well, without any hiccups. Three months later, in April of 2014, Thelma contacted CFS and asked them to place Tina in their care. She had grown concerned that Tina was beginning to abuse drugs and even speaking to older men on the internet with the intention of meeting them in Winnipeg. A CFS caseworker arranged to meet with Tina a month later on May 5th. During their meeting, the caseworker noted there was no risk of internet luring or sexual exploitation as previously mentioned by Thelma. Tina was enduring the brunt, the brutal agony of preparing a victim impact statement to read at the sentencing of her father's killers. Again, Thelma reached out to victim services in hopes they could lend Tina some guidance or assistance in writing her statement. Victim services explained to Thelma that it's not within their purview to get directly involved with children. A month later in June of 2014, CFS referred Tina to get counseling, but the services referred were only offered in Winnipeg. Transportation to and from these locations was difficult to accomplish which left Tina without immediate or comfortable access to the services she so desperately needed. Thelma allowed Tina to visit her mother once more in July of 2014. She gave her about $50 and a calling card before Tina took off. She had no clue 
This would be the last time she would see Tina alive. What was unknown to both Tina and Thelma was Valentina's drug habits as they began to ramp up once again. In little to no time, Tina found herself on the streets of Winnipeg at only 15. Tina spoke to her CFS caseworker and expressed the sentiment that she just needed a place where it feels like home. But all CFS could offer was hotel rooms or temporary shelters. On July 17th and 18th, Tina was under CFS care in Winnipeg and housed in a downtown hotel. She was placed in CFS care because there was an incident in which a call came in to Winnipeg Police Service describing a frantic Tina yelling for help as she was being dragged from her arm by an older male down Selkirk Avenue. There was no subsequent assessment conducted by CFS, nor did they offer Tina any additional support. And with that, she was released from the hotel on July 18th, 2014. On July 22nd, one of Tina's aunts, Angie Duck, says she appeared well and was even dressed nicely when Angie snapped a family photo. From July 23rd to July 29th, Tina stayed at a youth temporary shelter, but lost her bed after she missed her curfew twice. On July 28th, via social media, Tina reached out to a family friend, Stephen Whitehurst, and asked him for a ride from Winnipeg back to her aunt's home. Stephen was heading to Fort Alexander when Tina messaged him, and because of spotty cell service, he didn't receive the message until a significant amount of time later, once it was already too late. On July 31st, a missing person report was filed for Tina by the Winnipeg Police Service. Lana Fontaine, one of Tina's aunts on her father's side, recalls Tina staying with her for the long weekend in August, from the 1st through the 3rd. Tina called her CFS caseworker on August 5th and was picked up by the CFS agency and Winnipeg Police Service. Briefly after beginning her stay in Winnipeg, hopping from one place to another, Tina started dating a young Cree man, Cody Mason, who was from St. Teresa Point. Sometime in July, Cody and Tina were drinking on the street when they met Raymond Cormier, he was riding by on a bicycle while carrying a car muffler. Raymond initially introduced himself to the pair as Sebastian. This was the beginning of an interesting relationship between the three. Cody says Raymond gave them drugs and took them to various houses throughout Winnipeg. One specific house address stands out here, 22 Carmen Avenue. On August 6th, Cody flew back home to St. Teresa Point. Tina was visibly upset that her boyfriend had left, and in a fit of rage, she rode her bicycle to the house on 22 Carmen Avenue. At the house that night, an argument erupted between Tina and Raymond. Several witnesses claimed that Raymond was attempting to make sexual advances towards Tina when she grew angry after discovering that Raymond had sold her bike 
for drugs. Blood boiling, Tina left the house while continuing to scream at Raymond and threatening to call police about a truck Raymond had stolen. She did call 911, and after being directed by the dispatcher to call a different police number to report the theft, Tina used Raymond's alias, Sebastian, to report the truck stolen, unaware that he was using an alias to conceal his true identity. On August 7th, an 18-year-old girl met Tina for the first time. This girl's name has not been released to the media to protect her identity, as she is one of the last people to have seen Tina alive. For this reason, we will refer to her only as the girl. Sometime after 10 p.m., the girl spotted Tina sitting outside a convenience store at the corner of Langside Street and Ellis Avenue. Tina was alone, but even in the dark, her busted lip was easy to see. The girl felt a sudden pull to Tina that she still doesn't know how to explain. She sat next to Tina and talked to her for a while before going into the convenience store. She came back out and continued talking to Tina. An instant bond was formed between the two, stemming from their commonalities. Tina told her she was in the care of CFS and had run away, something the girl seemed to be familiar with as she herself had spent years in CFS care and ran away constantly. The girl felt a sort of moral obligation to attempt to help Tina. She had found herself in similar situations and was always grateful for the kids that had stopped and helped her along her way. The Aboriginal kids that lived on the streets of Winnipeg really looked out for one another. It was like this huge extended family because they all shared one thing in common, their culture. On August 8th at around 2.30 a.m., the girl is able to convince Tina to go to an emergency shelter on Mayfair Avenue, coordinated by McDonald Youth Services. Tina wasn't interested in staying at the shelter. The two girls left shortly after their arrival, just grabbing a bite to eat and using the restroom before they were on their way. An hour or so later, the girl saw Tina jump into a truck with several men. The girl did the only thing she thought to do and flagged down a Winnipeg Police Service cruiser. At around 5.15 a.m., Tina was the passenger in a truck reportedly stopped by two Winnipeg Police Service officers under suspicion that the driver was drunk. Tina's record was checked by the officers who stopped the vehicle and it was known that she was missing, but she was subsequently let go. These two officers were suspended for their actions in this situation and eventually left the police force. A few hours later, at 10 a.m., Tina was found unconscious near the University of Winnipeg and Ellis Avenue in an alleyway known to be a frequent hub for sex trade exchanges and other activities. Paramedics were able to wake her up and take her to the Health Sciences Center where she was medically cleared for discharge. Her CFS worker met her at the hospital, where Tina prompted to tell the caseworker that she had lost her bike, but her friend Sebastian 
was going to get one for her. When the caseworker pressed for more details on Sebastian, Tina revealed that he was a 62-year-old man who used meth frequently. She said she didn't partake in doing the drugs, but enjoyed hanging out with him. While in the hospital, Tina did test positive for amphetamines. The caseworker proceeded to take her to a downtown hotel and approve her to stay there temporarily. Unfortunately, Tina left soon after check-in. The girl from the previous night had lost track of Tina after her interaction with the Winnipeg Police Service officer, but was able to meet back up with her at 8 p.m. that same day. Tina told her about the incident from that morning. She said she got really drunk and just passed out in the back lane of Ellis Avenue before being taken to the hospital. This time, the girl says Tina wasn't alone. She was with a guy she introduced as her boyfriend, but failed to give his name. We know that this can't be Cody Mason because he's already flown back to St. Teresa Point. So it's unclear if this man that was with Tina is in fact Raymond Cormier, but I'd like to think that if it was Raymond Cormier, this girl would have taken note of his significantly older appearance. Anyway, Tina said she was going to hang out with him for a bit, but could meet up with the girl a little later. And they did. They reconnected at around 11 p.m. They talked for a few hours and really just enjoyed being in, in each other's company. The last time she saw Tina, Tina was walking away with a man that had offered her money in exchange for a sex act. The girl begged Tina to stay and hang out for just a bit longer, but Tina went on with the man. Now there have been critics who claim that Tina must have been standing on the corner in a highly trafficked area known for sexual exploitation, but the girl confirms that Tina wasn't even looking to sell her body for sex. She was sitting on a curb, chatting with another girl who was just like her. When the man suddenly approached and asked, Tina obliged. On August 9th, Tina was reported missing again. Several witnesses claimed to last have seen her on August 9th, walking down a street with a male who hasn't been identified. Another witness says she saw Tina on Ellis Avenue at around 5 a.m. On August 17th, eight days later, at around 1.30 p.m., Tina's 72-pound body was found wrapped in a duvet cover and placed in a plastic garbage bag that had been weighed down with rocks and thrown in Winnipeg's Red River. Now, what I found most interesting about the discovery of her body was the fact that police weren't in the Red River because they were looking for her. On August 17th, police received several reports that a man was in the Red River and visibly looked as if, as if he was struggling to stay afloat. Police were dispatched to the Red River to search for the drowning man and accidentally stumbled upon Tina's body. This begs the question, would Tina's body have ever been found?
if it weren't for the circumstances surrounding the drowning man? Or how long would it have taken for them to search that Red River? Would she still be missing? An autopsy conducted by a pathologist from the chief medical examiner's office revealed that there was no evidence of physical trauma to Tina's body. Mild decomposition was apparent, but the positive identification of her body was able to be achieved through the use of her dental records. Although the decomposition was mild, it was enough to limit the pathologist's ability to conclusively determine the cause of death. A toxicology report showed the presence of ethyl alcohol, but again, because of the condition of Tina's body, they were un unable to determine whether the levels of ethyl alcohol occurred because of ingestion prior to death or because it was a chemical produced by the body after death through the natural decomposition process. The report also showed a presence of cannabis, but again, pathologists were unable to, to determine the exact level as levels can falter between the time of death and the autopsy. Tina's manner of death is listed as undetermined, despite the pathologist highlighting that the way her body was found is highly suspicious. They simply were not able to conclusively determine a cause of death because of the condition of her body. The initial investigation into Raymond Cormier as the primary suspect in Tina's death began as an undercover operation titled Project Sticks that used the Mr. Big method. The Mr. Big method is an investigation technique that includes undercover police officers posing as members of an elite criminal organization. Through staged chance encounters, the officers befriend the target of their investigation and begin to slowly integrate the target into their criminal organization. They even stage fake drug pickups and drop-offs to maintain the integrity of the operation. The final step in complete initiation into the criminal organization is meeting the leader, Mr. Big, who asks for a confession to a crime the target is suspected of committing in exchange for membership. The success rate of these operations can be as low as 75% or as high as 95%. They are often used in cases that lack physical evidence and must rely heavily on witness statements and potentially a confession. Critics have argued both for and against this method. Some say the confession can be seen as coerced and thrown out of court if the target is offered financial freedom or any other assets as perks of completing their final initiation into the criminal organization. The operation begins with an undercover officer offering Raymond an apartment and becoming his neighbor by living next door. With the help of several other undercover officers, Raymond is introduced to a criminal organization seeking help with a variety of tasks. Raymond happily obliges and participates in this fake crime ring. After several months of devoted work, Raymond is flown to Vancouver to meet Mr. Big. 
Raymond's key to membership is his confession to the murder of Tina Fontaine. The crime ring had to know they could trust him after all. What better way to know if you can trust someone than having them confess openly to one of their darkest secrets? Tune in this Thursday to hear part two of this case and find out if Raymond does indeed confess to killing Tina Fontaine. I'll also be talking about a few other missing and murdered Aboriginal women connected to Tina's case. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at deadwrongpod. There you can find exclusive episode content like pictures from today's case. You can always find all my sources for today's episode in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, you can leave a rating or review on the podcast's page. Again, my name is Elizabeth, but you get to call me Liz. And this has been Dead Wrong. See you next time.